0: You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have uh, Bibles, you can make your way to the Gospel of John. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, there are actually hardcover Bibles there for you under your seat or somewhere nearby. You're welcome to take those with you as our gift or even just use them during our time this morning. In those Bibles, page 886 uh, is where you're going to find today's text. Uh, This morning, we're getting to kick off an Advent series that we're calling Word Made Flesh. Word Made Flesh. Uh, Advent, and I know some of you already know this and are very familiar with it, but Advent is the celebration and the anticipation of what's known as Jesus' incarnation, uh, that God the Son, who is fully God and has always existed, became a, a fully human man and dwelt among us on this earth. Over the, the centuries, this has presented an obstacle to faith for many people. Uh, and if you think about it this way, it's, it's perhaps a lot easier to acknowledge Jesus as a great teacher or some kind of prophet It's almost impossible to deny the influence that Jesus has had on the history of humanity, just as a human being that walked on the face of the earth. But where people struggle is this idea of that that Jesus is God in the flesh. How could God become human? How could he remain fully divine as he did that? These are, are not new questions. And so if you have these questions, then you're in good company. In fact, nearly all of the councils that were convened in the early centuries of the church were about this. And most heresies, the false teachings, false beliefs about Jesus that emerged over those centuries resulted from people either denying Jesus' full divinity or denying Jesus' full humanity or both. And since that time, in nearly every generation, someone or something renews that controversy so maybe if you've been in the church for a while, you've been a Christian for some years of your life, you might know in your mind what it was that renewed the controversy for you. For me, uh, when I was beginning to really explore what the Bible teaches, that something was the Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember that book by Dan Brown? It's been a—it's been a little while. Uh, it became a movie, you know, starring Tom Hanks. That was what it was for me. In more recent years, maybe you're aware of specific examples. I'm not really uh, in my from where I sit. It hasn't so much been one particular person or one particular book. Instead, we actually find ourselves today in the midst of a movement that's called deconstruction. Deconstruction. Uh, and that has a whole range of meaning. Not everyone means the same thing when they say that. But what it means essentially is that where many people have, who have followed Jesus in the course of their lives go through a process of divesting themselves of those beliefs, Uh, or at least those beliefs considered problematic uh, by our culture's standards. As I mentioned, there's a really wide range uh, of what deconstruction entails and what that means to people. But some, as they go through that process, choose to hang on to, to many of the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus. Things like the golden rule, you know, doing unto others as you would have them do to you. Things like the beatitudes, the blessings that are placed upon different groups of people but doing away with rejecting these doctrinal truths that Jesus' followers have always said are essential for people to believe for salvation. And the full humanity, but especially the full divinity of Jesus, that's one of those truths. So along with many people in our region, along with many people in our world, maybe you find yourself wondering this morning, does it really matter? Does it really matter? So what if Jesus was... Just an amazing human being. So what if, contrary to what Christians have proclaimed for generations in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit? So what if he wasn't born of a virgin named Mary? I would submit to you this morning that Advent is a great time to consider these questions. Otherwise, what are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing worshiping together in the Advent season. So that's what we're going to do over these next few weeks. Now, perhaps others of you here this morning are not wrestling with this. And you would say, I, I believe these things. But maybe if that's you, maybe you've lost your awe. Maybe you've lost your astonishment. And my hope for you this morning, if that's you, is that, that you would get it back. That this Advent, you would get some of your astonishment back. And that this Christmas, you would find your heart more fully alive as you recognize increasingly the worth of Jesus as the word made flesh. The divinity of Christ, as we're talking about today, it's something that we see woven throughout scripture. Uh, But the apostle John in particular, in his account of Jesus's life and ministry, his gospel, takes special interest in this. And the first 18 verses of his gospel are really saturated with affirmations that Jesus is fully God. So we're going to use that this morning as our jumping off point. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the gospel according to John chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let me pray for us this morning. Gracious God, your vision of peace and of wholeness comes to us both in sweeping revelations and in tiny signs of hope. So we ask this morning, even in these moments ahead of us, that you would kindle our hearts that we might be a truly hopeful people. Keep us from growing weary of waiting so that we do not miss the glory, Jesus, of your appearing, of your return. And even so, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's in your name. Amen. Amen. So two things uh, that we will consider today, indications and implications. So indications of Jesus' divinity, where do we see the affirmation that Jesus is fully God in scripture? And then implications of Jesus' divinity. What difference does that actually make? So first, let's talk about some indications, some indications. And let me say from the outset, I am hugely indebted to the scholarship of a few other people in this series, and especially Professor Robert Peterson from Covenant Theological Seminary. Uh, He was one of my professors when I was a, a student there, and he and others have compiled some really long and thorough lists of biblical proofs of Jesus's divinity. Uh, both what Jesus affirmed about himself, what the other New Testament writers affirmed about him. I'm gonna take several of those and highlight what I think are some really critical aspects of that. Uh, And if you'd ever be interested in doing a deeper dive into any of this, just reach out to me. I'd be happy to point you to some really good resources that go much deeper than we're able to go this morning. The important thing for you to know though is that this is not my original scholarship. I'm hugely indebted to some other people for the incredible work that they've done. But let's look at a few of the indications, the affirmations of Jesus' divinity, both in this text and then a couple other parts of the Bible. Indication number one, number one, Jesus has the nature of God. Jesus has the nature of God. Look again there at verse one. The word was with God and the word was God. Word or logos in Greek was used in the Old Testament to mean God's expression of himself. But the way John is using it here, he's saying the word is a person. And it's a person who is God, but who is also with God. And you you hear the tension that's being introduced there at the beginning of this gospel. Truly God, but somehow distinct from God the Father. So this is one of a number of passages in Scripture that give insight into the Trinity. That we worship one God in three persons. Christians are are monotheists, right? We worship one God. We're not polytheists who worship many gods. But the one God we worship is triune. It's the word we use for it at times. It consists, that one God consists of three persons. And they are equally God, and yet they are distinct. They are not interchangeable one with another. From the start of his gospel, John is saying here, Jesus is God. He has the nature of God, but he is not the Father. And then there down in verse 16, John says, from Jesus's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What fullness is he talking about? He's talking about the the fullness of God. The fullness of God. The apostle Paul goes on to write in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and what? the exact imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of his nature. And so likewise, John can conclude this passage there in verse 18 saying, though no one has ever seen the father, Jesus makes God known. He has the same essence, the same nature as God the father and therefore he is able to help us see what God is like. So Jesus has the the nature of God. Indication number two, Jesus has the titles of God. The titles of God. Stay there in verse 18 for a second. John writes, No one has ever seen who? God. But immediately afterwards, John writes, The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So Jesus is not the Father, but Jesus is the only God. He shares that title of God, the only God, with the Father. He also shares it with the Spirit, although John doesn't get into that here. And this is one of of many titles that Jesus shares with God the Father. If you've read the accounts of the Gospels, if you've read the rest of the New Testament, he's often called Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a title he shares with God the Father. And John's Gospel actually goes on to include uh, the famous I am sayings. If you've read the Gospel of John before, you might be familiar with those. Jesus says some crazy things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Or most famously, Jesus says simply, before Abraham was, you know, a thousand years before that, years and years before that, before Abraham was, I am, I am. And Jesus, when he says that, it's a clear reference to Exodus chapter three, when Moses was at the burning bush and he's asking God, what's, what's your name? When people, when I'm going to set the slaves free from captivity in Egypt and people ask me who sent me, what should I tell them? And God says to Moses, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am who I am. This is why the the Jewish leaders were so committed to killing Jesus in his life. They didn't kill him. Think about this. They didn't kill him because he healed people. They didn't kill him because he cared for vulnerable people. They were jealous that he had such a following because he did some of those things. But they killed him, John chapter 5, because he made himself equal with God. As an indication of his divinity, Jesus took the same titles as God the Father. Indication number three, Jesus has the attributes of God. So not only the nature and the titles, but the attributes. Like the Father, but unlike any other being, Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. Look there again at verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. If that sounds familiar... It's because it is an unmistakable reference to the very beginning of Scripture. Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So we see here, John is affirming Jesus was not created. Jesus is eternal. He was there before creation. Jesus also shares the glory, the grace, and the truth of God. And we saw that throughout this passage. Verse 14, we have seen Jesus' glory full of grace and truth. Or verse 16 and 17, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And then the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, who is glorious? Who has glory? God alone. God alone is the high and the holy one. And God is gracious. God is the one who is slow to anger and abounding in love. God is truth. The sum of his word is truth, the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Jesus has these same attributes, the glory and the grace of truth of the one, and the truth of the one true God. Jesus shares a few other attributes not mentioned here. In Hebrews chapter one, the author says Jesus is immutable. He does not change like God the Father. In Philippians three, the apostle Paul says Jesus has the very power of God, the same power that God the Father has, Jesus has. And all over the gospels and all over the New Testament, Jesus has the authority of God. Crowds of people And Jewish leaders are always marveling and sometimes grumbling at the authority with which Jesus teaches. One famous example of that is when Jesus uh, heals a paralyzed man. This man is brought to him by his four friends, carried on a mat. Before Jesus heals him physically, what does he do? He forgives his sin. He forgives this man's sin. And shocked, understandably so, the Jewish leaders are like, well, that's blasphemy, That's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sin except God alone. Jesus then goes on to heal the man physically, not only because he cares about the man physically, he does, but also to demonstrate, no, actually Jesus does have the very authority of God to forgive sin. So Jesus has the attributes of God. Indication number four, Jesus does the works of God. Jesus does the works of God. Who created the world? Who created the world? If you were to be asked that question, apart from maybe, you know, this context in a sermon that's about the divinity of Jesus, most often we would say, well, God's the one who created the world. And you would be absolutely right in saying so. But specifically, it was Jesus. Long before his incarnation, it was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who was the agent of creation. And so John says here in verse three, all things were made through him, meaning Jesus, And without him was not anything made that was made. You get both the positive and the negative. He made everything and nothing was made apart from him. More simply, verse 10, the world was made through him. And there are multiple other references to Jesus as the creator, the agent of creation in the New Testament. But Jesus doesn't just do God's work of creation. He also sustains. He does God's work of providence. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that in Jesus, all things hold together. So he doesn't just create the world and then kind of send it off to, to unfold however it will. He holds all things together. Jesus does God's work of redemption. Of God's work of redemption. He, as we saw, forgives sin like God alone can do. Jesus also gives life, gives spiritual life to those who are dead. He redeems people from spiritual death and gives them life. And so in verse 4, John says, in Jesus is what? Is life. And the life was the light of men. And John says in verse 12, to all who receive Jesus, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He does that work of redemption. And then Jesus does the work of consummation. He brings all of these things to completion. You think about some of these other famous texts in scripture where we read, for example, that God is reconciling the world to himself. Well, how is he doing that? In Jesus. He's reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. God is restoring the world to the original goodness it had before sin came and corrupted and fractured all of it. How is God doing that? Well, Jesus is the one who says in Revelation 21, behold, I, Jesus says, I am making all things new. As he affirmed over and again during his ministry, Jesus does the works of God. He does only what he sees the father doing. One more this morning, one more. Indication number five, Jesus receives the worship due to God alone. Jesus receives the worship due to God alone. Now we don't see this one in John chapter one, but if you fast forward a few chapters to John nine, Jesus there heals a man who was born blind. And sometime later, that man now healed from his blindness, now able to see returns to Jesus and he falls down at his feet and begins to worship him. How does Jesus respond? He receives it. He receives it, which is a crazy, bold statement. Especially when you consider that in Scripture, when when angels, for example, are worshipped, the angels immediately say, hey, don't worship me, get up. Don't worship me, worship God. Or when the apostles or other of Jesus' followers are worshipped, they immediately reject it. They're not comfortable receiving any kind of worship themselves. We just finished the book of Acts, if you've been with us. In Acts 14, I know it's been months since we've been in Acts 14, but Paul and Barnabas were in a city called Lystra. And in Lystra, the people call them gods. They call Barnabas Zeus, they call Paul Hermes, and they begin to worship them. As soon as Paul and Barnabas hear about this, what do they do? They start running. They start running for the middle of that crowd. They start tearing their clothes, and they say, stop, stop. We are just men. Do not worship us. Worship God. Jesus doesn't do that. So you can think about it this way. Here's the options presented to you according to scripture. Jesus is either a narcissistic, self-deluded maniac on par with very few people in the history of the world or, or the worship due to the only true God is also due to him. And in Philippians as well as other places, the apostle Paul writes, it's the latter. That worship is indeed due to Jesus. One day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this list far from exau- is far from exhaustive, but John 1, I hope you're seeing this morning, gives us an incredible entry point to begin seeing, to begin believing that Jesus really is fully God, that he is fully divine. Jesus has the the nature and the titles and the attributes of God. Jesus does the works of God and Jesus receives the worship that is due to God alone. So let's now turn our attention a little bit to asking the age old profound question, so what? So what? What difference does the divinity of Jesus make for our lives and for this world? Some implications, some implications. And I'll talk about three. I'll use the headers, Revelation, Salvation, Anticipation. So implication number one, Revelation. And here's how i invites you to think about it this morning. Without the full divinity of Jesus, what would you know about God? Without the full divinity of Jesus, what would you know about God? You would know something. You would know something. God reveals himself through creation. God reveals himself through his providence, his ongoing care of that creation. And because human beings are image bearers of God, God also reveals himself through our conscience. We don't all have a a cricket named Jiminy, you know, telling us what to do, but we do all bear the image of God. And therefore our conscience is part of how God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself at times through miracles. He did that with Moses at the burning bush. He did that with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And we see even in the present day, there's so many stories of people who once worshipped Allah, who were Muslims, who had a miraculous appearing of Jesus in a dream or some kind of miraculous intervention that caused them now to reject what they once believed and now follow Jesus instead. God also reveals himself in scripture. He inspires some to speak and to write his very words down for our instruction. So, Without the full divinity of Jesus, we would still know something, and actually quite a bit, of who God is and about his desires and about his purposes. It's just that if Jesus is fully God, we know so much more. We know so much more. All of the things that Jesus says are things that God says. All of the things that Jesus does are things that God does. We wrestle with this question, man, what is God like? He's spirit. No one has ever seen him. What is God like? He's like Jesus. He's like Jesus. As John put it in this text, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, who is God, the only God, who has been there since the beginning at the Father's side, he has made him known. The author of Hebrews says it this way, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So because of Jesus' divinity, God is infinitely more knowable. Infinitely more knowable. Though he remains holy, he is not far off. Though he is not distant, though he remains separate from us, other from us, he has become that much more approachable in a whole new way. And we see the gentleness and the compassion of God himself in the way Jesus treats sinners and sufferers in his life on this earth. And we see God's righteous anger in the way that Jesus pronounces woes upon the Pharisees and turns over the tables in the temple and the way he weeps angrily at death and what it causes in the world. And we, as John so saturated this text with this word, I think I would propose to you this morning, we understand grace in a completely new way that we would not apart from Jesus. God has always been gracious. He's always been slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How much more do you know the grace of God, the heart of God's grace for you because Jesus entered into this world and did what we could not, did what the law could not do, as you heard Rachel say before. We know his grace in a whole new way. And if you've grown up in the church, if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you probably take this for granted. You probably take for granted how much you are able to know about the one true God because of the incarnation of Jesus. We know as much as we do because Jesus is fully divine. Implication number two, number two is salvation. And I'd invite you to think about it this way. Without the full divinity of Jesus, what would be the state of our souls? What would be the state of our souls? They would be lost. We would be lost. We would be condemned. If Jesus is merely a human being There is no salvation in him. Even, this is kind of crazy to think about, even in a sacrificial substitutionary death like the one he died, there would be no salvation in it if Jesus is just a man. The end of the 11th century, Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, said it this way. said, man the sinner owes to God on account of sin what he cannot repay. And unless he repays it, cannot be saved. Is that not our dilemma as human beings? We owe what we cannot repay, but unless we repay it, cannot be saved. So we could say it this way. Only man should, only God could. Only man should repay our debt of sin. It's it's our sin. We're the ones who caused it. We're the ones that rebelled against God and his good creation, but we are utterly incapable of, of repaying that debt. The psalmist writes in Psalm 49, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. No mere man can ransom the life of another man, of another person. Now we can bear the wrath of God against sin. And it's sobering to think apart from God's intervening mercy, we will bear God's wrath against sin, as a punishment. That's what hell is. That's what eternal condemnation is. But there is no way for a mere human being to bear God's wrath redemptively, to bear it on behalf of another person, let alone the whole world. We cannot, as the scholar Louis Burkhoff once put it, bear God's wrath so as to open a way of escape. We can't do that. See, only man should but only God could. Salvation belongs to God. Jesus' sacrifice is not less than this, but it is so much more than trading one human life for another. And because, it is because he is fully God that he is able to take the curse of sin upon himself, the whole curse of sin, to become sin for us and to bear God's wrath, not just punitively, but redemptively. Only man should, only God could. This Advent and every Advent and really every day of our lives, we get to celebrate only Jesus did. Only God, only man should, only God could, only Jesus did. And From his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. If you've been curious about that, this is why Christians fight, even physically at times throughout history, to uphold this truth. Uh, This is why in the fourth century, councils were convened, And a man named Athanasius went toe-to-toe with a man named Arius about this issue. It's because salvation itself is on the line when we're talking about the full divinity of Jesus. You can believe different things about baptism. You can believe different things about the specific outworkings of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You can believe different things about the roles that men and women should play in Jesus' church. But you can't believe different things about the divinity of Jesus. If Jesus is not fully God, there is no salvation in him. There's none. There's none. And I would implore you this morning to recognize that for the sake of your own soul. And if you're wrestling with some doubts, if you're even in a process of deconstruction yourself and saying like, I'm not sure what I believe anymore, people will lie to you and tell you it doesn't matter that much. I'm here to beg with you to understand it does. It does matter. There is no salvation in Jesus. There is no salvation for any of us apart from the full divinity of Jesus. Recognize this for your sake. Recognize it for the sake of others. Weep for those who reject this. Mormons are not Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. People who practice New Age spirituality are not Christians, even if they have a really deep respect for Jesus. Even if, and this is a tragedy all on its own, even if they actually embody better in some cases the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus than Christians do at times. They do, but they don't believe this. And there is no salvation apart from the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Lastly, implication number three, anticipation. Anticipation, and I'll put it this way. Without the full divinity of Jesus, what would be the quality of our hope? What would be the quality of our hope? As you heard the DeVivos read at the Advent read this morning, on this first Sunday in Advent, we are proclaiming our hope. But if Jesus is not fully God, this would be a hope without substance. This would be wishful thinking. This would be naive optimism. This would be like the quote-unquote hope that some people have that that a politician or a political platform is going to be the thing that solves our deepest problems. And it never will. There is darkness in this world, men and women. And whatever aspect of that darkness you find yourself most overwhelmed by right now, disease and death, confusion and lies about God's good design for gender and sexuality, genocide of certain people groups, persecution of certain people groups, the trampling of poor and marginalized people, or even the darkness of your own heart, your own sin patterns. Whatever aspect of the darkness you are most overwhelmed by right now, you long for something that will deal with that darkness. You long for something that will not let that go on forever. Am I right? What can Jesus do about any of those things if he is merely a man? He could do the same things that you and I could do, but that's not particularly encouraging, is it? That's not particularly encouraging. Like, I'm the guy who just a few days ago grumbled my way through a very simple act of neighborly kindness. It was an hour long for someone that just needed some extra help. I can't even do that without complaining if the hope of dealing with the darkness of this world and the darkness of our own hearts is someone like me, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. But if Jesus is fully divine, if he is not just a light, if he is the light of the world, then Jesus' light, as John says here, will shine in the darkness and what? The darkness will not overcome it. God himself in the person of Jesus will rescue the world from the darkness of sin. God in the person of Jesus will refuse to let sin have the final word. And in Advent, we are anticipating this. Just as the people of Israel long anticipated the arrival of the Messiah, we anticipate a day that God will bring all of this work to completion, that he actually will deal finally and fully with the darkness. They were anticipating a birth. We are anticipating a return. They anticipated a first coming. That's what the word Advent means, a coming. We anticipate a second. And in Titus 2, the Apostle Paul writes, The grace of God has appeared. Indeed it has in the person of Jesus. And it teaches us to live godly lives in this present age, verse 13, as we wait for our blessed hope. What is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not merely a man. He is, as Paul says there, our great God and Savior. And that is why he is Our hope, that is why our anticipation is not naive optimism or wishful thinking. If Jesus is God, then there is real substance to the hope that you have this morning. Jesus will accomplish all he has set out to do. Does the divinity of Jesus Christ matter? It matters more than you and I know, more than we know. And so this Advent, ponder these things. Consider these things. Don't merely look to Jesus as a great moral teacher or a leader, or, or even some kind of divinely inspired prophet, see the necessity and see the implications of his full divinity. In Jesus, we get to see what God is like. In Jesus, there is a salvation that never could have been found in a mere man. And in Jesus, there is hope with substance. So may you perceive it, may you take hold of it, may you see the worth of the word made flesh. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us. Give us eyes to see your worth, fully God and fully man. If we have wrestled with this, if we are wrestling with this, if we've rejected this, I pray you would help us to see how critical it is to to our hope, to have any kind of substantial hope in this world. It's critical that you not only be a man, but be fully God. I pray this Advent, you would renew our awe and astonishment for those of us who believe this. I pray that you would help us to see how beautiful a gift it is that the word became flesh. We celebrate that not only in Advent, but each and every day of our lives as your followers. And we celebrate it as we come to this table, that you did not leave this earth to be corrupted by sin, but you entered into it to rescue and redeem it. So help us now to turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Help us to see how you reveal the Father, how you accomplish our salvation, and how you give us real hope. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.